Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. First, I want to take a moment to thank my listeners. This podcast, after two years, and as we head into our third year, it's unbelievable, has now reached 25,000 people across various countries. So I still find this amazing, the power of podcasting. And fortunately, this gets to help me get smarter and more knowledgeable, and I hope it does for you, the listeners, as well. My guest today is someone I know very well, and I consider him super smart, and he's a really good clinician on so many levels. I'm going to date myself now for a second. Back in the 1970s, when there there weren't too many TV channels, there used to be a commercial on E.F. Hutton, the brokerage firm, and they had this very memorable picture. You know, it was on a golf course, and everybody was standing around watching this professional about to make this really key putt. And all of a sudden, somebody in the crowd turns to his friend, says, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And Hutton says, and everybody gets quiet. And like there's this hush. And that's a little bit how I feel with my guest today, Dr. Keith Berkowitz. When he brings up certain topics, that's things that especially that I don't even know about, I kind of stop and listen and want to hear what he has to say. Dr. Berkowitz is currently the medical director of his practice in Manhattan, the Center for Balanced Health. He was formerly the medical and business director for the Atkins Center for Complementary Medicine. He's the author of two books, The Stubborn Fat Fix and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Flour-Free Eating. Besides his medical degree, he happened to, in his spare time, get an MBA from Columbia Business School, quite a prestigious place. And finally, something we're going to get to today also, I think people are going to be interested in, he's part of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Working Group that have put forth novel treatments for COVID-19. So it is my pleasure to introduce my colleague, my friend, and even actually my neighbor, Dr. Keith Berkowitz, (laughs) to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Boy, you put a lot of pressure on me with E.F. Hutton to begin with. Yes, that's what I like. I like to to keep the pressure high. So the first thing I want to discuss, Dr. Berkowitz, is because I think people still have a lot of fascination with Dr. Atkins. So we could start with that a little bit, if you don't mind sharing. You know, he was sort of this mythical figure in medicine, you know, the diet guru, little celebrity doctor, blockbuster businessman. He had a whole industry of diet, of Atkins meals, books. What was he really like? I mean, you, you worked at the practice with him before he passed. Was he a real innovator, a real student of medicine? I mean, what, what was your thoughts about him? What I really loved about him, I always think about, we talk about, especially in this day of the pandemic, about how certain doctors distinguish themselves who go against the grain and say, hey, listen, think it a different way. And he was one of the early ones to do that, that I saw. He was never afraid to say what he felt and what he meant. And he always backed it up with scientific evidence. You know, back in those days, and no one could probably imagine today, a low-carb diet was heresy, right? Right. It went against everyone's, you couldn't do that. You're going to end up with kidney dysfunction. You know, everything would go bad. One of my favorite things I remember is when I started working with them, we sent a request to present at the American Dietetic Association, and they turned us down. 
because they said you can't do a low-carb diet. And now fast forward almost 30 years, it's probably the standard of care now, right? The low-carb diet, the keto diet, the paleo yeah, diet. Yeah, that is definitely what's in. We're going to talk about some diets because I know that's also in in your expertise. You know, what I found though interesting about Dr. Atkins, just looking at you know, when I remember always looking at his like bio, he was a internist. Uh, he trained as a cardiologist actually at the same institution where I did St. Luke's Roosevelt in New York, which is now Mount Sinai West. How did he pivot to holistic medicine? Do you think it was just his interest in different areas of medicine besides just being a cardiologist? If I remember correctly, I think he began in occupational health. So one of his first things, I think it was occupational health. And he ended up meeting one of his mentors, which was Carlton Fredericks. So Carlton Fredericks was a famous nutritionist, probably in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, who actually ended up later working with Dr. Atkins at the Atkins Center. So I think that was one of his big mentors. What's so interesting about Dr. Atkins, and I think most people don't realize, even though he was famous for diet, his true love was integrative medicine. Mm, that's, that's a good point. Well, I want to get to that because you know that, that's like a perfect segue because here he was, he became this successful, quote, diet doctor. And then I started hearing about his practice and it got, you know, obviously word got out. He was doing a lot of, uh, quote, I guess, very controversial treatments for that time. Chelation, IV vitamin therapy, you know, what both of us do now, which is routine. Ozone, which got him into a little trouble. I mean, because it was so radical. Hypothermia, which now he did hypothermia for prostate cancer, which was now even done for sepsis. So he was willing to sort of really go out of his comfort zone. He was a thorough guy that he felt he had the literature or or he had some experience working with other practitioners and doing this. Yeah, he also, people don't remember, he got really badly beaten up. He even got called before Congress. No, I know. I know. I know. No, the ozone <laughs> therapy that that I remember being in the paper. They, I think, they suspended or took away his license, and it was a whole big thing. And here he was, this amazing doctor at the height of all of the I call it the witch hunt. You know, when they were going after doctors every single week, especially in the holistic functional community. And he was definitely the biggest target. He had the biggest target on his back for sure. And he probably was one of the few survivors. If you look at the end of the day, he was able to weather the storm. Yeah, they wiped out a lot of people. You know. What I had so much respect for him is he never wavered. Like yes. no matter how much pressure he had and how many threats against him, he never stopped believing what he thought. And what's interesting is everything he ever did, he took from literature. We'll even start with the low-carb diet. I remember him showing me an article in the uh, JAMA in the Journal of American Medical Association from the 1960s on low-carb diets. Even further back into the 1930s, there was the studies on the Intuit Indians that were being done. So he actually took from literature. And what he was, in my mind, famous for was intravenous vitamin C. I didn't know that. Wow. Which he took from Linus Pauling. Sure, of course. Yeah, he was one of the heroes. Only won two Nobel Prizes, not too famous. And and (laughs) what actually attracted me, and I'll tell you the story how I ended up working there. I went there to visit. He had an intravenous room, IV room at the time. So I went in to talk to patients and I met three women. All three had breast cancer and all had told me that they were told by the doctors write your will, pack your bags, you're going to die within six months. And each one told me that was 15 years ago. So he had kept them you know, going with this intravenous vitamin C. And so interesting, we'll talk about this later, is that's really part of the treatment for COVID. Well, yeah, we're going to get into that. We, Yeah, I know. You're right, because we had Paul Merrick on the uh, podcast uh, several months ago 
we're definitely going to get into that. And it was interesting how you have a connection with him. So my final question with Atkins, because now we're going to get to you, because, you know, Dr. Atkins, his history. But what would you say you learned the most or you admired the most about him? Sort of summarize it. So this is going to be an interesting thought. To me, it was sitting in front of him with the patient and him not knowing something, opening the textbook and looking it up while the patient was present in front of him. Wow. Remember, this was before Google. You know, right now, if I don't know something, I ask the patient, pause, <laughs> and I turn around and I Google it. I said, let's look at it together and hopefully I can give you some insight. Yeah. Well, you and I grew up with Encyclopedia Britannica, remember? So that was our, and thank God they had a supplement every year. But to me, you remember at this time, he was probably the most famous doctor in the world, arguably. He had the courage to show a patient that he didn't know something and look it up. That, to me, forever stays with me. Yeah, so that's that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, essentially saying his humbleness to not be so arrogant. Because we know we hear so many stories, you and I both, patient brings up something even to the doctor, and the doctor just waves his hand and says, you know, that's ridiculous. Candida yeast, that doesn't exist. IV vitamins, they don't work. And they dismiss the patient, not really even knowing anything about these treatments or diagnoses. And so that to me is pretty impressive. So you just told me in a nutshell, I unfortunately never got to meet Dr. Atkins, but I would have liked to, but you're my connection to him. All right, so let's get to the Center for Balanced Health. And I'm gonna ask you something interesting. I think you told me too, you discovered unfortunately Dr. Atkins when he passed away in his office or something. So all of a sudden now you're, it's your practice essentially, right? You're taking over. So actually I found him on the street. He had fell on black ice. And, and hit his head and unfortunately never woke up. Wow. And then after that, I actually, within a month, found in my own practice. We ended up starting in Gramercy. I was able to get an office space from a colleague of mine. Oh, so you left, you didn't stay in the same space where he was? No, no, that, that practice ended up closing and we opened up a new one. But I was lucky I got to take the best of the staff with me. So I was very lucky. Well, I was going to say, so at that point, I mean, obviously you knew his protocols, his way of doing things, but now... You know, like anybody, when all of a sudden now the ball's in your court, you're kind of making your own way in your own path. So what do you, at your practice, you know, when you call it Centered for Balanced Health, why do you use that term and what are you trying to achieve with the patients? The reason I chose the term balanced is, you know, my background's conventional. I trained in the hospital. I worked as a hospitalist. I maintain hospital privileges even till today. And to me, balance is taking the best of what people call conventional and the best of what they call holistic. And, and create that, what I use like the term integrative, to use the best of all treatments. And I think that's important. I think we shouldn't ignore one way or the other, but we should take the best of the information we have out there and form the best possible treatment plan for your patients. And I think people really appreciate that and allows us to communicate effectively with their own doctors and really help them get the best care possible. I agree with you. The story I always tell patients, a couple of things. One, obviously they can get a lot of information on the, for example, candidate on the internet about the yeast-free diet and all that. They don't need a doctor for that. And on the other hand, and a lot of them sometimes go to health food stores. And I always tell them, because I know even locally where I have been on Long Island, there've been some very good health food stores. They have some pretty educated people. But, and this, this is the big but, I always tell them, but that person in the health, food store doesn't know your iron level. You know, they don't know your, you know, your, your blood cell counts. They can't prescribe antifungals if you need them. So exactly to your point, I think having the combination is a potent prescription for the, for the patients and a benefit. And I know yourself and myself, we've had people come from out of state because they couldn't get the kind of care, the combination. They could only get conventional or they 
you know, if they were going holistic, it was somebody who wasn't a medical doctor that could actually still prescribe medicine or do diagnostic tests. My favorite quote from a patient, I have a patient that comes all the way from Port Jefferson family to see me in Port the Jefferson, city. You have people coming and... from the Middle East to see you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but they, he gave me the best quote. So what, what he said to me is like, someone asked him, why do you go all the way to the city? This great doctor's out of Long Island. He goes, I can't afford not to go see him. So the point is, that's what's kept them healthy. You know what also I've learned, and you've probably learned this over the years, is I've learned that I've gone from where I was trained from a top-down model, right, where we look at symptoms and stuff to more of a bottom-up. And what I've really learned that the disorder may not matter as much because the foundation is often the same. And I think that's where someone going to a health food store is going to miss. Like if they have candida or something else, their digestion, their blood sugar, there's so many interactive processes there that you have to be able to look at all of them. And I think someone just seeing a small picture of it, they may be missing the whole picture. That was a great, again, another segue into the question I wanted to ask you too. You know, it's very interesting. I order certain blood tests that not a typical conventional doctor does that I think more functional medicine doctors do. I see labs from a lot of times other doctors that you know patients have switched care. Actually, I've never really seen one from you. So they obviously, they like you a lot. They don't leave you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you something. Nah, you no, it's okay. <laughs> we we could just talk. But what what tests would you say? Because I'll, I'll throw out a few of mine after if you want. Like, what tests do you think should be part of a more routine assessment, even of a patient? I'll throw out my things. Like I like to look a lot at homocysteine levels, obviously magnesium in the red blood cells, and iron and ferritin levels, which you know I, I find that a lot of times people's general doctor don't really focus on at all. Like, and, you know, and again, but the holistic doctors sometimes, or functional medicine doctors, you know, too, they order a lot of amino acid studies and things. And I look at them and say, I'm not sure that means that much to me. So I'm curious, what would, out of your typical chemistries and CBCs, what do you like to order that you find has a high value? I like homocysteine. I do ferritin. I do now vitamin C, vitamin D. I do magnesium. Well, like glu- or glutathione. Do you find those levels are reliable and you know, give you a good idea of how... Not to- always. I mean, vitamin C is kind of interesting. So in the age of COVID, I'm definitely seeing that low vitamin C post-illness is leading to more likely to be a long hauler. So we start to see patterns. But to your point before, you know, I thought about the lab you stated to me. You know what I thought to myself? Liver function. So like if you're treating candida, you have to make sure the liver works, right? right. If your body can't detoxify, then you can't get rid of the candida, right? If the, and that's always think of. the liver function tests are normal though. So that's what I'm saying this way. And people are always concerned about glutathione, milk thistle to help the liver function. But I look at ferritin. So ferritin Ferritin's is a good judge. marker. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of where, you know, and people forget about liver function. And this is always interesting. When typical liver tests, you need to have like 80% damage. Right, right, right. Right. So you're not going to necessarily see that. And what I've also learned, and you start talking about tests, and this has been the hardest transition for me from when I started my training, is to be able to take a step back and not look at each individual part and test, but how they work together. And that's where the interesting thing becomes, where a normal level may be okay in someone, but when combined with other tests, it may not be so normal. Give me an example. With cholesterol, a high HDL. In a diabetic, HDL should be low. So if an HDL is high, I use the term discordant. It means the adrenals may not be working. Digestion may be off. Thyroid may not be working. So the HDL is inappropriate for the person's other issues. And that's what I kind of look at. You bring up a great point because sometimes this thing can be very confusing. People we know now also where 
hemoglobin A1C, we know, is an important marker. We, I mean, this seems a lot for anti-aging or, you know, having your blood sugar control. But I have, I've had a patient I've been following for a while. It's really interesting. She's always worried because whenever we do her fasting glucose, it's about like 110, which obviously is not great. But her hemoglobin A1C is 5.3, you know, which is low. How could that be? If they're very insulin resistant, they're having a lot of volatility. So, so people that are very insulin resistant, what it means? See, I like that. That's my example of discordant. Yeah, that's why that I brought word. it up. I was, you know, I, I want. That's why I like talking to you. Like, I, I want the listeners to benefit. It's like, I, once in a while, I get these bloods, which I'll see not often, but enough that I'm like thinking, wait, this doesn't make sense. But to me, that's more worrisome, right? Because well, what's the worrisome part? The, the high glucose, the volatility. So, if you're having a high fasting, then you means you have to have low numbers to make up that A1C. So, the volatility. And I find from a complication standpoint, especially in people with blood sugar issues, volatility is really critical. What would you do for a patient like that? You would try, obviously, and, and, they, and I know this patient, actually, she's lovely. You know, she follows a really clean diet, you know, and she really watches her sugar. What about stress and cortisol? So that's another factor. We live in New York, Dr. Berkowitz. <laughs> this, uh, I, I don't have that thing. I don't have in my drawer that shot that gets rid of stress. <laughs> but, you a needle drain cortisol out in the morning. Would you look at that then? Yes, absolutely. So, okay, so you would get a, a morning cortisol. And probably a nighttime as well too. What about the saliva? Do you find that that's another great point too? Like the saliva test, I've ordered a lot of them over the years because I, I think as you do too, that the adrenals are underappreciated. There, there are stress gland. Obviously, we know so many of our patients are stressed and it causes God knows how many issues. But I have been frustrated. I do like ordering an AM cortisol level and along with aldosterone, just to get an idea of what's going on in their adrenal glands. But I've ordered a lot from, I guess it's Genova, the saliva that measures the cortisol and I think DHEA. Never found it to be like really off or give me any kind of clear cut thing. Do you? Yes. I'm not looking necessarily always a high or low. I'm looking at inappropriate. So let me give an example. So someone who's very highly stressed and they have a normal cortisol in the morning, that's probably not a good thing, right? That means they're not responding properly. Mm -hmm. Or if they have a high cortisol night and they're not sleeping, that could be the reason. See, that's what I find where a robot can't do medicine, right? So that's where intuition and experience teaches you because the labs could still be normal, right? but they could portray a picture that's abnormal. And I think that's really critical that we have to always look at. I use the term discordant, inappropriate, things like, for example, you can have a normal glucose and insulin level. The glucose level could be 75, which is still normal, but the insulin level could be 20, which is normal. But someone with a glucose of 75 having an insulin of 20 is really abnormal. Right. It's really way That's too That's a high. really good point. Right. Because, you know, they don't really teach you that in medical school. It's like you can no. you know, and of course, they're saying more than ever, <laughs> you wrote that book about the idiot's guide to flour-free eating. It's like they, they've done with labs now, the idiot's guide to reading labs. You and I both know too. I mean, <laughs> I have to do two things when I have a patient come into the office, especially even with COVID now. Before I used to sit next to a patient and actually go through, you know, a hard copy of their labs and show them, you know, they see all these abnormals because, you know, the lab keeps on changing the ranges. So they see all this blue or red and they get nervous. And what I tell them right off the bat is I said, look, anybody can read a lab that says abnormal, high, low. I said, it's my job as a doctor to carefully interpret because my best example is you could be off 20 points on your liver test, it's not going to make a difference. But if you're two points off on your potassium, you could be dead. Right, exactly. I, so, <laughs> but I like what you're saying that really what doctors don't, and I think they're not even trained enough to say what's the relationships between these abnormal, not just say, oh God, this, 
pancreatic enzyme is up, that boom, you know, just start running in that direction. And let's get an abdominal scan, you know, da da da, do this. What is going on with all these other related tests? So that that's isn't that, that that would be like an interesting course in itself. But you know what I think what's happened is I think we've forgotten like basic biochemistry, basic chemistry, basic biology. You know, it's funny, we learned in medical school the first year, all the basic sciences. I think we have to have a refresher at some point because people are forgetting that. You're right. You know, it's funny because you, know, you, you think back and I, I tell this to the medical students when I teach them at Turo. I tell them because I, I teach them in the first year or two. I teach the basic immunology section. And I said, really, what you're learning your first two years of medical school is a foreign language. You're not learning anything practical most, in most of the cases yet, because you got to be able to speak the language once they throw you into the country. And uh, But I think you're right also that, again, when we get so I mean, I find myself, too, buying books that were like kind of medical school kind of books to refresh myself. Linus Pauling, he was like really the ultimate functional medicine doctor, even though he didn't practice, he wasn't an MD. He discovered those pathways, you know, that our cells go and has so much to do with mitochondrial support, things that also you and I see with chronic fatigue patients and trying to explain to them how we have to boost their mitochondria, why certain things like magnesium and and things that can boost ATP are important. You know, I always tell patients, I said, right, especially my chronic fatigue patients, so I said, look, we got to go back to eighth grade biology right now. So you're with me? <laughs> and then they get that little scared look on their face. Like, well, I didn't do so good in biology. I said, it's okay. I did all right. I'll explain it to you. <laughs> you know? Look at like a virus, right? I mean, if you ask people where a virus goes, how a virus replicates, how a virus works, people don't know. And when you think of treatment, and I think this is what you and I have learned. When you think of treatment options, you need to know how things work. When we talk about chronic fatigue, you need to know how the Krebs cycle works, right? Because that's what we're, we're looking at. And sometimes people call chronic fatigue viral encephalitis, where it affects the brain. And some people now thinking post-COVID, maybe some of that too. Then you have to know how to get the body to work better, how to get the immune system to work, how to get the digestion to work. All these things really work in concert. And I think what we've become, one of the problems we've become too specialized where we lost some of that. Well, you're 100% right. Nobody wanted to move out of their comfort zone. It's almost like Dostoevsky said in, I don't know, one of his quotes, one day the doctor will be examining the person's right nostril and will say, I I can't examine your left nostril. That's not my area, you know. (laughs) You can only have one billing code today. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to that too. I'm telling you, we, we have the full thing here. And I think also, like you're saying about patients understanding things, it's like, you know, again, I also see a lot of chronic sinus patients, especially in the allergy side of my practice. And my biggest pet peeve or war has always been protecting my patients from taking antibiotics. Because so many of these patients, it's been either just inflammation from an allergic inflammation, or it's been fungal inflammation. In a lot of the cases, not bacterial. So all of these patients that have gone on antibiotics sometimes for weeks or months, developed all of those secondary problems like candida or other issues from being on antibiotics. And I think if patients understood that viruses or allergies don't respond to antibiotics, they wouldn't be demanding it or or even accept it. Do you agree? Well, that goes back to our foundational, right? So if the foundation's good, the immune system works good, you don't need, your body's able to fight it off itself, right? You don't need. I mean, I think we forget about that. Yeah, well, right. And a great example of that too is that, you know, and I tell patients my biggest thing now is this Navage machine. It's really, it's like the best neti pot thing. You know, you have the salt water in it too. You rinse through your sinuses. These people are like, oh my God, I don't, I really, my sinuses are better. I don't need to take antibiotics or. And look at the side effect profile, right? I mean, that's where it really counts the most. 
<laughs> All right, let's get to, we're moving along pretty nicely here and I'm having a lot of fun. I hope everybody else who is listening is. Let's go on to how you got into this COVID-19 frontline working group with Paul Merrick, interesting guy. So tell me how you got involved with this. It's a great story. It all started, I couldn't sleep Wednesday night in March. COVID had just started coming out. And I'm like, there's got to be something better that works. I started doing some research. I was looking for some of the more severe treatments for sick patients. And I felt, okay, let me look at the ICU literature, right? I figure if people are dying and they get intubated and stuff, there's got to be something there. And I found Paul Merrick's studies on sepsis and septic shock. And he used a protocol he called IHAP. So it was hydrocortisone, ascorbic acid, which was vitamin C, and thiamine. I'm like, wow, this is right up my alley. And so I called him. <laughs> oh, so that's what you did. You're like, you're like me. I just, I call people <laughs> randomly. They think I'm like, uh, you know, what am I selling? But yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs> Thank God you didn't hang up on me. Right. The secretary picked up first and called me back. So I started talking to him and we started discussing and I read more literature. I found he had been criticized for his study by this vitamin study. He took a lot of heat. And what people don't know about Paul Merrick, he's the top intensive care doctor in the United States. From citation, he's number two in the really? world behind one. From wow. a research standpoint, he has more publications. We have to pause for a second. Please, everybody, listen to my podcast on IV vitamin C with Paul Merrick, which I did several months ago. If Dr. Berkowitz says he's the top, I'll take his word for it. <laughs> so in Chicago, they did a study on pediatrics and they reproduced his results. His results showed an 80% reduction in mortality. Oh, and people should only know sepsis. You know, we know when we were in the hospital and a patient had sepsis, that was like a death sentence. I mean, I don't know what, you know, what is like. It's like a 5% survival rate. And so I end up talking to him. I'm like, any other doctors think the way you do? He gave me a couple of the names. Joe Verone in Houston, I talked to. Umberto Maduri in Tennessee. Pierre Corey, who's now the most famous one after a Senate testimony. Poor guy. And Wisconsin and uh, Jose Inglesis in New Jersey. And we ended up really liking each other. We ended up forming a group. Howard Kornfeld in San Francisco was really good in making us into a group. We call FLCCCC. And we decided there's no treatment right now. Actually, you know what's funny? Even today, there's no treatment protocol for COVID. Because <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Berkowitz, you know... <laughs> Governor Cuomo, the country, everybody was desperate. Let's get these ventilators, let's get these ventilators. And now we're finding out this is like really bad news. You go on these ventilators, there's a good chance, unfortunately, you're not getting off of one. And I, and the, and Paul Marek brought up about the low flow oxygen, obviously doing the vitamin things, because Dean, you won't need to do this, which God knows, you know, you're on a ventilator for a month, you're lucky if you'll be able to walk in the next four months, even if you get off of that. So let me ask you this, Dr. Berkowitz, you get a patient in your practice that calls and says, I just tested positive. Not feeling so great. I'm not, you know, I don't know how sick I am. What are you telling them to do? So that's changed in the last two months. So maybe what I'll do is I'll talk about the, his protocol and then I'll talk about how it's changed now. We had an individual protocol called Math Plus, so which was a combination of methylprednisone. What was really interesting, we found that ascorbic acid of vitamin C, thiamine, and heparin. What was so interesting, and I didn't even know this, that a methylprednisone and vitamin C are synergistic together. They really are really powerful. Let me slow you down on one thing, though, too. This is important. Even doctors listening to this might be a little bit confused. Dr. Merrick did work with hydrocortisone. Obviously, that's one form of it. I've been seeing a lot in the literature. They're saying now dexamethasone is better. I think you don't agree with that. And methylprednisone, that's, again, that's another form of cortisone. So which so is, the reason why methylprednisone is superior is its lung. It's lung absorption? 
Exactly. It's so much greater than in the other one. And what turns out that methylprednisone has, you know, greatest absorption within the lung of any of the steroids, of the cortical steroid. Oh, that's really important to know. I didn't, I didn't even know that. And I, you know, I treat asthmatics. I mean, that's what Medrol is, right? Those Medrol packs that people get. Yes, exactly. So that's why we would choose methylprednisone over the other ones, even though the original studies went on hydrocortisone, we've learned, and this is Dr. Maduri's research out of Tennessee. Yeah. He's really the expert on it, that the greater bioavailability and efficacy of methylprednisone in lung tissue. And again, remember, people are developing viral pneumonia. So that's one of the reasons what happens. One of the problems early on, you talked about the ventilators, was that people were developing blood clots. Right. Well, this is a vas- this is like a vasculitic type of viral infection. Right. It's not a lung infection. It hits any blood vessels, which obviously is cardiac, kidney. I mean, that's brain. I mean, this is why it's such a deadly, you know. And the problem, problem. With, with using ventilators and some with blood clots, you're increasing the pressure. You're going to cause more lung tissue death. So it actually ends up making it much harder to get off of a ventilator from that aspect. So we early presented that in March. When you say you presented it, what did you do? We tried to publish it. I spoke to every politician you can name. And we got dismissed until later in around August when the recovery trial came out from Oxford showing dexamethasone worked. But all of a sudden, steroids are now the standard. Well, again. no, okay, now when you're saying it's working too, are we talking about hospitalized patients or would you even- Hospitalized say, patients. Okay, so you're going to take me through how you deal with somebody who calls you and says, I just tested positive, what should I do? Just sit home and wait it out? So we actually have a new protocol called iMask. So what it is, is really it's led by a drug called ivermectin. So ivermectin, a lot of people may not know this drug, but it's probably the most used drug in the world. That's the antiparasitic medication, right? Right. It's been given 3.7 billion times. Wow. So it's actually, it won the Nobel Peace Prize, the, the drug and the inventor, Dr. Murray from Japan, because of the amount of lives it saved in Africa. And what's interesting, it's really considered a drug at the level of penicillin or aspirin. I mean, if you think of drugs that have so many uses in so many different fields, Aspirin and penicillin have been found. They work on so many different things, like super drugs. Ivermectin is at that level. So ivermectin, from what I remember, that was used for parasitic infections. Right. Head lice, scabies. Yeah, it's usually here for scabies. And it's usually just a couple of pills. So who made this connection to COVID now? And why should an antiparasitic medication theoretically work? Does it work on blood clotting? Does it work on, you know, what's its mechanism? So the connection is actually not new. So they, they've actually thought for a long time that it has antiviral properties. They've been looking at even things like Zika, influenza, dengue fever. So it has other viral properties. What it does is it blocks what we call a cargo transporter protein that allows the virus to enter the nucleus of a cell. I think people forget, and this is back to early cellular biology, is that in order for a virus to replicate, it has to get into the nucleus of the cell. So it stops that process. In in vitro studies, it shows a 99.8 decrease in viral load within 24 to 48 hours. So again, you get this call from a patient and they say, Dr. Berkowitz, uh, I have a little low-grade fever. I don't feel terrible, but I have the virus. I'm, I'm worried. You would start them on ivermectin. Yes. So the way we do it is it's given 12 milligrams. It's a weight base, but roughly 12 milligrams on day one and day three. And that's it. You skip day two? So day one, when you first treat them, and then two days later, you give a second dose. Oh, you wait. I mean, because it, it has long action. You don't have to give it the second day. You give it the third day. Yeah. So it's about 48 hours. And that's it. And that's it. Actually, I just got an email today from a doctor in Los Angeles in the hospital. She's been doing it. She did it on her first five patients. All five recovered. Normal oxygen, fever gone within a couple of days. 
I don't remember if we talked about it back then too, but you know, again, remember the hydro- hydroxychloroquine got obviously all that attention as a preventive, this and that too. Seems not to have panned out. I don't know, you still agree or disagree with that? There is some effect in mild disease as an outpatient drug. It really is not shown to be that great as an inpatient drug. So that was the problem, is that, that it was inpatient. Okay. But also remember, ivermectin is actually a direct antiviral. So that's the difference. So ivermectin has wow. an antiviral mm-hmm. effect. That's really what we're looking mm-hmm. at. So it's not as an anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. alone, but it seems to may have that as well. And I'll talk about long holders too. We'll get some effect you, on now that you well. mentioned to me too before we when we had met that you're getting a lot of pushback about this though too. That was, I don't know if it's is it big pharma, is it big government? Who is like not happy about this? Probably everyone. Really? <laughs> Why? I mean, a lot be- of the studies have been done outside the U.S. And what's interesting, we've seen studies from Bangladesh, Singapore. I got an email from a scientist in Iran. That's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> Peru, Argentina, Egypt, Iraq. There's been studies been done. And a lot of them are smaller studies. And also this anecdotal stuff, right? Look at Africa. You don't really hear about, except for South Africa, much COVID in Africa, in most of the continent of Africa. And that's also we're seeing too. So there's anecdotal evidence. There are hospital systems now using it. University of Alabama and Birmingham is using it. It's starting to gain some traction. Are you using it with anything else? I mean, along with the vitamins, I know that you've recommended before, like so with vitamin C and B and... So vitamin D we use. Vitamin C is also used. Cursetin. So vitamin D with prophylaxis, it's 2000. And by the way, ivermectin may work for prophylaxis as well. And then for early treatment, we may go up to 4000. For vitamin C, for prophylaxis, it's about 2000. And then for treatment, about four to 6,000. Next one is quercetin, which is 250 milligrams, and then up to maybe 500 for treatment. Melatonin, interesting enough, which people use for sleep a lot, between six and 10 milligrams going up. And for early treatment, if it's not contraindicated, aspirin, a full aspirin of 325 milligrams. So you don't have any clotting. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, easy enough and not that expensive. I mean, it's sad that again, that nobody really gives people any guidance because most of the time, as you know, people are just go sit home and wait, you know, keep your pulse ox if you have one on. Well, you know, it's interesting today, there's still not a guideline. And actually, it's just been recently again presented to the NIH waiting for them to look over the data. There's 30 randomized controlled trials that have been done already. I'm waiting for one of the biggest out of Singapore, which they looked at 4,000 people, which is one of the biggest trials. That's currently in peer review. So when that, we'll have to see what that shows. What was most dramatic of all the research that I saw in Argentina, they looked at healthcare workers and they gave 800 people ivermectin prophylactically. They had another group, the control group, which didn't get ivermectin, which was 400. In in the 800 group, zero cases of COVID. Well, let me ask you this. So prophylactic, how long would you have to take? Because you said you're only taking two pills. I think prophylactic, some studies were once a week, uh, some were once a month. Uh-huh. Okay. And as far as you know, no real resistance? Because, you know, with antibiotics, we worry about resistance. Even antifungals, we have to worry about. But it's actually not working. It doesn't work specifically on the virus. That's the difference. It's blocking the carrier protein. So what's interesting about ivermectin, the virus may not matter. That's the beauty of it, right? They mentioned to why they think also zinc is a good supplement to take because that also blocks the virus from entering. Yes, and specifically RNA viruses too. And ironically, things like Zithromax, where they sometimes use, or hydroxychloroquine, work through the zinc pathway. In that group that didn't get the prophylaxis, 58% or about 237 got COVID. That's pretty dramatic. Boy, you know, these kind of things, you know, to, to get this epidemic, pandemic. What's so disturbing to me 
is here's a drug that has a long-term safety. I, I feel safer with that than I do with uh, hydro- hydroxychloroquine. I got to be honest with you. And its safety profile is well known. It's low cost. And we need to try something. I think waiting and watching is not an appropriate treatment. It's like with food allergy. You know, I've talked to you about this before too. You know, I do these uh, sublingual drops of dangerous food allergies. I finally jumped in because the literature was there. It's shown to work. It's like sitting on the sidelines, not an answer anymore. Like to tell people to avoid when they have like five major food allergies and they can't go out to eat anywhere. It's just not a life. It's like us with COVID. We're boxed in. People want to get out of the box. You know how much this drug costs? I would say $3 a day. But if one of the hedge funds gets a hold of it, it could go to $1,000 a day. That's what I worry about. So we better keep this secret. No, it's generic. It's already generic. Yeah, I know, but they do it to everything. It's actually given away free. Merck gives away 600 million doses every year for free. A couple of things too. I mean, I'm just curious. So what do you think about the vaccines? I'm a big believer in vaccines. I think they're very important. What I'm a little nervous about, there's been a death this week. I don't know if you saw a doctor died in Florida two weeks after the vaccine. Autoimmune thrombocytopenia autoimmune platelet disorder, and end up having a stroke. From the vaccine or they don't? Well, they don't know. It's two weeks, a healthy guy. So what I'm worried about is people with allergies or autoimmune disease, that's where we don't have really clear literature on to see what the risk is. And again, I, there's other vaccines coming out like AstraZeneca, which may be more traditional, which may not be as problematic for that group. That's the one group I really kind of worry about right now without knowing more information. In the UK, they warn people with allergies not to take it. I'll tell you my input on that because, again, my background in allergy, I give it a lot of thought. And I deal a lot with what's called mast cell activation syndrome, which I think has been an underappreciated condition. I think the U.S. was a little bit cavalier. I think any patient that has, you know, and we all know those kind of patients that have these extreme allergies, that just like everything they seem to react to, medicines, vaccines, some of them foods. I would be very, very cautious and have to weigh in the risk benefit because I just think they have overactive mast cells. And mast cells, as I did on a prior podcast, they're your patrol cells. They're like the first line of defense and anything can set them off. Well, these are people that are not taking other vaccines like the, they're not taking the influenza vaccine for the same reasons. I still also make the analogy. It's kind of like the polio epidemic. I think the only way we're going to really get out of this thing to some normalcy is we can have really a high degree of the population vaccinated and hopefully safely because- uh, But I think you need to use both. I think you have to use the influenza model, which is Tamiflu and the influenza vaccine. I think that's the model we need to use where it could be ivermectin and a vaccine together. I agree with you also. I've had influenza twice. I had the swine flu in 2008, unfortunately, and it was pretty nasty. And I had one of the other influences. They weren't, I was in residency and they weren't even offering us vaccines back then, you know? <laughs> it wasn't like doctors were treated for anything. I wonder if used together, you don't need to get as high rates to get out of this. That's what I'm really curious about, right? If you prophylax enough people with ivermectin and they're not getting sick, we may be able to develop immunity much faster. That's one thing that's interesting that we haven't thought about. And also what's confusing, and you maybe you can answer this for me. If you have positive antibodies, you get the vaccine. Well, this is what they're putting out. It didn't make sense to me 100%, but what they're saying is you should still be vaccinated, because, which is a little bizarre because they don't know how long the immunity is going to last. And you know, typically, a natural infection immunity is usually a lot more powerful than a vaccine. Right. So I don't know where they're coming up with that information. I know people are on both sides of the fence. People that have had and recovered and say, I don't really think I need this now the vaccine. And I know other people are saying, look, especially if they're healthcare workers on the front line, they're like, I don't want to ever get that thing again. I mean, it was just so nasty. And the last group is the long haulers, right? I mean, what do we do with them? 
And what's interesting about them, I've seen a lot of them have positive antibodies. But what's interesting, there's actually a study in ivermectin that, that was done in Peru. And they took 33 people that had long haul symptoms, what I mean, post-COVID symptoms, fatigue, body aches, headaches, blurry vision, and they actually gave them the two different day treatment. 88% of them improved. Wow. Immediately. Well, Dr. Berkowitz, this is really important information. Yeah, I, I think we need to kind of look delve into those groups because do you want if someone has long haul symptoms, is a vaccination appropriate if their immune system may already be hyperactive? What do you think about the IV vitamin C? I've been using that in some of the patients for the long haulers. Do you think is it too late or do you think it might help? Yes. Steroids sometimes work. What's really interesting with IV vitamin C now, Dr. Verone in Houston, in really, really sick intubated patients, they've upped the doses to twenty-five grams twice a day. And they're seeing response that the six grams may not have been high enough. Well, then I'm hopeful that with the long haulers, that maybe, you know, again, like the chronic fatigue patients I see and you probably see in your practice too. They can't say it helps out everybody, but there's that percentage of patients that it's, it's a game changer for them. In chronic fatigue, I see a lot of POTS. So that's why I, I've been thinking about ivermectin, because one of the theories in chronic fatigue is a viral, right? Be an underlying viral process. Ivermectin actually has really good brain penetration. So that's where the thought is it may actually resolve that some of these people may have a post-viral encephalitis type of a picture. Last thing I want to touch on, it, it could be another whole podcast in itself, which maybe we will do. I want to see if you put your MBA hat on. What do you see as the future for affordable healthcare and access? It's a mess. I mean, you know, I think about it, and obviously with COVID, when I tell patients, I feel so bad for them. I mean, you know, you and I you know, both really deal with a lot of the insurances because it's such a scam these days. They don't pay for half of the kind of things that, that we do in our practice. And I feel bad that the patients have to lay out money. And also everybody, a lot in this gig economy, people either don't have insurance or they have high deductibles. I have a high deductible. I have a 6,000 in and out of network. I pay everywhere I go. COVID has really exposed this healthcare inequality, That's right? what I meant. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. I think the, the way medicine practice has to change. And so what's interesting about that is that we have to really look at rewarding people for taking ownership of their health instead of punishing them for bad health. And I think we've really taken the approach, I call it a paternal maternal approach towards you're sick, you're bad, you did this, you're overweight, you're bad. But really, why not think the other way around and say, hey, let's give you incentives to do better health for yourself. And I think that's going to change the model where if people don't get as sick, the cost of healthcare does go down dramatically. I don't see any other way that that cost would drop. And you know, as a parent, negative reinforcement doesn't work, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know very well. Well, I hope my listeners feel the way I do today. Dr. Keith Berkowitz delivered just like E.F. Hutton. When, when Dr. Berkowitz talks, I listen. I hope <laughs> everybody who listens to this enjoys the time we spent here and got a lot out of it. Again, thank you, Dr. Berkowitz. Thank you. I'm sure we'll be talking in the future. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.